There are a lot of different points in our history that changed our country as we know it. And 9-11 is in that mix. It put us on a different path. But the most important thing that it showed us is that as Americans, we come together in times of strife. No 9-11 date should ever pass without Americans coming together and remembering why we have all the freedoms that we have. What we would really like to see happen this year on September 11th is for people to come out and join Carry the Load and the National Cemetery Administration cleaning the headstones of all these great heroes out here to show the families that the death of their loved one matter. Join an existing team at the local cemetery near you. If there's not one, we would ask that you start your own. Help us clean the headstones of our heroes. Let's make sure that we give them all the due respect that they deserve. Wednesday, September 11th, 2019. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Yes, that is not our traditional intro music. I called an audible. As of this recording, I left the 2019 Military Influencer Conference, which was a great conference, uh, by the way. I can't say enough good things. And I'll wrap up my experience about it on either a bonus or next week's episode. But on the three-hour evolution back to the in-law's basement, I kept thinking about ways to record an episode to honor those lost on September 11th. And how was I going to do that? And when I got home, our traditional intro, it, it just didn't seem right. There's no way I can get hyped in a, in a traditional sense for this episode. It's a very important and solemn day for our community. September 11th is my generation's Pearl Harbor. It's a direct reason why a lot of what are now OIF and OEF veterans raised that right hand. Some did four. Some are close to now retiring, which is really hard to believe. That's To me, that seemed like yesterday. And it's a reason why some never came home or never came back the same. It's a day of reflection. And that's... And that's what this episode is going to be all about. News releases, feedback, they're going to be on the bonus episode. Yes, after being stuck at 99 ratings and reviews for the better part of three weeks, we finally made 100. And for that, I'm very grateful. Thank you. And you're going to have that bonus episode on Monday with Adrian Cronauer and Mel Brooks. And that's when we'll go back to Born the Battles regular format. But today, I want all the attention paid to this week's stories. If this is your first podcast, you picked a good one to listen to. Our guest interview has been the Secretary of Defense's flight surgeon for over 25 years, both in and out of uniform. As of the drop of this podcast, 18 years ago, 
He was the commander of the flight clinic in the Pentagon when the plane hit the building. Before any helicopters landed, before the first first responder ambulance showed up, our guests helped lead the immediate recovery effort and evacuation of the Pentagon on 9-11. And right here on this very episode, he's going to give you his own personal account of that day. He is Air Force veteran, Dr. John Baxter. A lot of memories in this in this building for me uh, personally. Right. Uh, you've been here for 25 years? For better or worse, yes. And, you know, back in those days, uh, before the time you were assigned in the Pentagon, this building was um, pretty Spartan, you know, uh, peeling paint, uh, bare light bulbs in some of the hallways. And, and I suppose that's part of the story that after... Um, 9-11 yeah. and Secretary Rumsfeld made the decision uh, within a day that it would be rebuilt. There were those advocating that, look, we're better off just demolishing and building a new facility. And Secretary Rumsfeld uh, pointed out that this is a, a national landmark and a place full of history and we would rebuild it. And it has been rebuilt. And as you saw walking in and, you know, from your time in the Pentagon, yeah. it's it's like a museum there. There are a lot of pictures on the walls, paintings, memorials, his, history. Uh, and so it's a it's and of course, all the safety features have been built into it. You know, we talked about you're talking about maybe demolishing it and moving into right. a different headquarters. I don't right. I, I couldn't see a D.C. without the Pentagon. Right. Um, let's back up before the Pentagon. Uh, before you even started serving, uh, before you were in uniform. Why did you decide to serve in the first place? Um, probably uh, growing up in a military community had something to do with it. I I looked up to people in the military. My father was in the Air Force. And uh, so I had exposure to the, the tough missions, the uh, selfless service that uh, many of my parents' friends engaged in. Yeah. And so I, I always thought about the military as an option. Got you. What year did you join? Before you were born. Uh, <laughs> I was commissioned in 1976. So four years prior to that, 1972, I graduated from high school. Got you. Flight medicine. So you're a flight surgeon. Correct. correct? And you were that in service. Um what do you have to do to become a flight surgeon? Well, that that's a great question. I am board certified in family practice, which of course is a specialty where you see uh, all ages, all types of patients, the full gamut. And and if something is a you know extremely complicated, difficult, needs specialized management, of course we refer that out to one of the specialties. Gotcha. But by and large, we try to see. Uh, every issue that walks through the door, if I see a patient that comes in and I determine that they probably have a cataract, I'm not going to fix their cataract. Yeah. I'm going to send them to ophthalmology for that. But um, that's the nature of our business. We try to take care of as much as we can, as thoroughly as we can. And your question was, how do you become a flight surgeon? Or probably 
why do you become a flight surgeon? Yeah. It turns out that a lot of medical conditions are are uh, affected by changes in altitude, changes in pressure, and there are certain conditions that you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't be getting into an airplane if you have those conditions. Say that you have a a collapsed lung. Th- this can happen spontaneously, and sometimes it's not a major problem, uh, and it will resolve on its own. If you get in an airplane, that that dead airspace in your chest cavity is likely to expand and give you cause, uh, difficulty breathing and may kill you. And so, yeah. flight medicine is a specialty designed to educate physicians who are otherwise clinicians in the things that we need to uh, address before people fly, things that may occur during flight and to make sure that um, our warfighters who are aviators are, you know, ready to do their missions, whether that is flying uh, a heavy multi-place cargo aircraft or a single seat fighter. Got you. Um, What are some unique things about flight medicine versus like on the ground medicine that you have to be like take aware of? Like you guys get trained, probably some specialized training. Right. Yeah. Right. You you do go through a a six-week course with uh, a lot of instruction in the various uh, areas of flight medicine. And then there's um, some exposure to the flight line, including incentive flights. There are, uh, uh, you know, there's some survival training, you know, dunking in a a swimming pool and get learning how to keep calm, egress from a confined space underwater, um, and then survival training out in the field. You know, certainly not as rigorous as, as our uh, aviators and others go through, but... Uh, no, never, no seer for Dr. Baxter. Well, it is called seer. You did seer and, training. and Yes, it, but certainly it, it's not the course that, that uh, you know, aviators take up in... Uh, in Washington State, I mine gotcha. was down in San Antonio, and they've had various versions of this over the years. So, like Seer Level One, right? Vice, like right. Level Ten. Gotcha, right. gotcha, gotcha. Very good. Um, what about like like G's and things like that? Did you have to like do? Yeah, we um, rode on the centrifuge, and uh, great fun, by the way. And um, <laughs> that that's another good point. And, you know, these things affect you when you're. Um, flying i mean and uh experiencing the centrifuge really gives you a feel for you know how much work it is to stay conscious when you're pulling a lot of g's that's why our flyers wear g suits uh there there are conditions that are aggravated by pulling g's and that's one of the things we do here in the flight medicine office is people come to us for flight clearances say even reporters and folks like that that are going to get an incentive ride. There are certain conditions where we wouldn't want them to be pulling G's, like if they had herniated discs in their neck or they have cardiac problems or yeah, something course. like that. You know, we're, we're going to say that this is not a good idea. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Very good. Um, while you were in, you eventually became the commander of the Pentagon Flight Medicine. Correct. Uh, talk to me about the journey 
to that point? What was it? You know, how 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 does one become the commander yeah. of the Pentagon for uh, Medicine Clinic? Okay, well, I believe it or not, I went to law school. I came into the Air Force as a JAG officer. I was a trial lawyer, uh, prosecutor, defense counsel, uh, civil litigation in federal court for the Air Force, and uh, just determined that I had a deep interest in science and medicine in particular. I went back, got the prerequisites to go to medical school, never knew if I would ultimately do that. But along the way, I did apply. I did get in. And I really enjoyed my time as a JAG. Uh, but I made a, a career change, went back to medical school. I attended the Military Medical School Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences up in Bethesda, graduated in 1989, um, Was uh, did internship was a flight surgeon for three years, then completed residency and family practice and just got a phone call out of the blue. They had an opening in this particular clinic. And uh, so I came here as one of the flight surgeons. Then uh, there were some personnel changes. And before I knew it, I was the commander of this clinic. Interesting. JAG officer to uh Right. To a surgeon. And, and let me just add, because people ask me this a lot, I make no pretense of practicing law at all. But the training and experience helps me every day in running the organization. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, you know, from personnel questions to uh, what do we need to do to comply with regulatory guidance to people telling me that, gosh, you can't do this. Bring me the regulation. <laughs> We're getting an exception to this, that that sort of thing. Gotcha. And um, anyway, but yeah. on we go. I, I practiced medicine full time and uh, family medicine and flight medicine and uh, started here in 1995. What's the mission of the Pentagon Flight Clinic? Uh, a lot of uh, folks in the Pentagon travel, you know, to around the world to do various things. We have people that mobilize out of the Pentagon. Um, we take care of the folks that uh, are involved with uh, leadership in the cases of national emergency, and we do some special things for their care. And we do this overseas travel mission, which is you know, a fair number of missions per year. Uh, we provide flight medicine care for Patients from all services, uh, Marine aviators, Naval aviators, Army flyers, Air Force flyers. We also provide care to some non-flyers, and uh, we provide care for some senior civilians who are designees for medical care. People like the Secretary of Defense and uh, other very senior people. Chairmen, chiefs of staff. Yeah, well, the chairman, of course, is active duty, would be eligible for care otherwise. But there are senior civilians that, uh, gotcha. say, service secretaries who perhaps didn't ever have military service, but they can be designees for care. And uh, so uh, and we try to make their care accessible and and, uh, you know, we try to provide the very best care that can be provided. But we do that for patients of all ranks. But, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's tough for very senior people to take time out to come down to the clinic. We might run down to their office or sure, sure. do things to, to not not take away from their schedule, 
but they get the same care. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had a, a, a great, uh, uh, rapport with the offices here in the Pentagon. And, and I think, uh, all of us here really enjoy taking care of folks in the Pentagon because basically people work very, very hard here uh, yeah. for a purpose larger than themselves. And, you know, so it's, it's our honor to try to make their care as easy as we can. So from 95 to 2001, you were still the direct, you were still the commander. Right. Um, you were here for September 11th. That's in right. In the Pentagon. That's right. Walk me through that day from the time that you first came in the clinic. Okay. I'll do that. Let me give you a little background. Uh, this clinic at that time was manned with four flight surgeons, one nurse, some medical technicians, some administrative personnel, and a few others. Uh, we have our own pharmacy. We had our own radiology at that time. And um, it was a day much like any other. We had patients scheduled. I was doing physicals that morning and um, was, you know, I'd completed one or more physicals. And at some point in between patients, I walked out to get my next patient. And I noticed on the TV in the waiting room that a a civilian airliner had struck one of the World Trade Center towers on a clear day. Yeah. And then I uh, thought that was quite unusual and tragic. Took my next patient back. At some point during my appointment with that patient, I became aware that the background noise in the Pentagon had changed. Uh, it seemed more quiet than normal, but then I heard shouting and, and it wasn't just a little bit of shouting. It continued and I opened the door, stuck my head out of the clinic and, and noticed that, in fact, there were people running and there were people shouting and there was smoke in the hallways. Wow. And others in my clinic became aware that something had happened and we assembled quickly in the waiting room. We asked our pharmacy tech to pull a drug kit. What did you think it was at that point? Did you think it was a, a bomb or? My first impression was that probably there had been some type of explosion or, or maybe a fire. I personally don't remember hearing a, a loud noise. Others in the clinic said they did hear a loud noise. And so we assembled the, the crew, everybody in the clinic. Uh, there was a back uh, procedure room and there was a, one of our uh, physicians was back there performing a procedure. And uh, so he was not there at, at this meeting, but we asked our pharmacy tech to grab his um, grab a medical kit. And we, of course, we have travel kits that we take overseas. So we had one pre-packed and uh, it included a small contingent of narcotics. Gotcha. And we, um, we went out into the hallway and our emergency plan was to uh, unite with the DiLorenzo Clinic, which is another medical clinic here in the Pentagon. And they're down on the first floor. As former staff here, I do. I am familiar with that clinic. I am right. Familiar. Yeah. And so on our way down 
to the De Lorenzo Clinic and we traveled as a group, uh, someone told us that there were casualties in Corridor 5. So we... Like on your way down. To on, on our way down to De Lorenzo, they said, hey, there's there's casualties lying on the floor so in Corridor you, 5. You, you, so we you didn't, ran... You didn't even make it to your rendezvous point. Correct. We ran to Corridor 5 and sure enough, there were patients on the floor in Corridor 5. And there was one in particular who was badly injured with burns over the front of his body. He was a an army lieutenant colonel and he was in excruciating pain. Most of the skin was peeled off his face and, and his exposed hands. And he uh, was trembling with pain. And so I talked to him. Uh, we took vital signs. And his main concern, and he kept repeating this over and over, he told us what his room number was and asked us to go get the rest of the people out of there. He said that there were 11 people working in there and he wanted to make sure that we got them out. And uh, this gentleman was in such pain that I had my pharmacy tech open up the med kit and give me a syringe of morphine and I gave him morphine right there in the hallway just so he could uh, deal with it a little bit as we moved him. And um, this gentleman later wrote a book about the incident and he details this uh, initial medical care he got. His name is uh, Brian Birdwell. He and his wife, Mel, wrote a book entitled Refined by Fire. And you can read about his account of all that Talks in that about book. The whole. So he survived. Right. He did. He did. And uh, amazing. Went back to Texas. I think he was an elected representative down there, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. But just a, a wonderful family. And he he was one of the people that uh, you know was all over the news when uh, President Bush went to visit the injured in the Washington Hospital Center burn unit. And uh, he he was a guy that was horribly injured and, and uh, you know, saluted the president, even though it was very painful. He he saluted the president. And that, even though he had skin Yeah, and that made, and... Uh, made the news. Wow. Um, at any rate, we, I left some folks to transport him out to a triage area in the uh, center courtyard. And we moved on. Uh, by this time, it was difficult to see very far in the Pentagon. The smoke was so thick. There was also uh, a scent of gasoline or fuel of some type. Wow. And uh, we were all coughing. But what we did was- At this point, at this point you still don't know what caused the whole thing. We, we do not. But wow. uh, our concern was evacuating people. And our choice was to get them to the center courtyard. So we- uh, basically shouted down the hallways in each direction. Uh, we were on the f on the first floor, fifth corridor at that time, uh, and we shouted down both uh, corridors, both directions, told them to come our way. And um, we did have a few people and we directed them to the uh, center courtyard. Then we took a stairwell and we went all the way to the fifth floor and we... Uh, went as far as we could in each direction, shouting to evacuate, go to the center courtyard, come this direction, 
Because again, you couldn't see. You could see a little bit down by the floor, but you like certainly- Like by your feet, but everything else right, was smoke. Yeah. And uh, wow. again, everybody was continuously coughing. And we did that in both directions on the, the fifth floor, dropped down to the fourth floor, did the same, third, second, and got back down to the first floor. And we ourselves went out into the courtyard. And what were you guys feeling at this time? Probably pretty, pretty coughing pretty hard. Oh, yeah, right. coughing pretty hard. And, you know, all of us in the medical field do a lot of training for emergency scenarios, in particular, advanced cardiac life support, advanced trauma life support. And I had been an advanced trauma life support instructor for a number of years. And so I uh, was very grateful that day for all that training because they train you to deal with things like this, you know, how to triage and make sure someone's got an airway, make sure they're not exsanguinating, bleeding to death. And if they are, stop it. And all the steps that you need to do rapidly to save someone's life in a trauma situation. At any rate, we had a number of people lying on the ground in the middle of the courtyard. And we weren't the only helpers there. There were all sorts of folks who had brought patients out into the courtyard. Many, many of them, I'm sure, were not medical people. They were just bringing their colleagues and coworkers out there. They were just seeing there. where it was, where everybody was gathering. And then someone began to shout that there was an incoming in two minutes and kept shouting that. And so we- Incoming as in a helicopter's coming to pick people up? Or no, incoming no. As like incoming, some kind of incoming threat. And oh, wow. They didn't specify, but we decided that we were going to move people out of the building and get them out uh, near the the Potomac River, which was another triage site. So we carried the patients that we had through the building and out in into the area by the river. Wow. And um, once there, we uh, I recognized the Air Force Surgeon General, General Carlton, and as I learned later, he had been having a meeting with the vice chief of the Air Force. Now, General Carlton was a surgeon by trade and stayed clinically active, even though he was the surgeon running General. the Air Force Medical Service. And so he had his sleeves rolled up and he was helping triage and we were working, you know, shoulder to shoulder uh, doing this work. Um, How prepared was your team? Well, funny you should ask. Uh, in the summer of 2001, the commander of the DiLorenzo Clinic and I had a conversation about having a joint exercise between the two clinics. Dr. Geiling and I uh, decided on a uh, scenario of a jetliner striking the Pentagon at the heliport. And we chose that scenario because if, as you know, living in Washington, D.C., certain times of the year, it gets foggy. And uh, you also know that the airliners coming into National Airport come in from the north generally, and they turn right over the Pentagon yeah. for their final approach into National Airport. Into Reagan there, that's pretty close. Yeah, and And so we thought it would be 
a somewhat realistic scenario that one of these airliners could uh, get off course, get their altitude wrong, have a mechanical problem, and strike the Pentagon. And so you trained for this exact scenario. We we did almost. And uh, so we after we performed the exercise, we went back through and addressed a number of issues that were uh, deficient. Things like we didn't have very many stretchers and they were stored uh, pretty far away from the clinic. So we obtained a, a bunch of stretchers and we found a storage area right in the clinic, in the DeLorenzo clinic. Uh, our radios didn't communicate well with uh, the uh, Pentagon emergency personnel. So we made sure we got radios that would communicate with what we now call PIFPA, the Pentagon Force Protection Agency, and with Arlington Fire so and Rescue. Local. Gotcha. Uh, we also didn't have good visibility on what was happening during the emergency. So we devised a procedure where uh, when we stood up the medical center, control center, we would send a person with a radio to the to the on, on-scene commander's location just to keep us advised of what was going on so we could anticipate medical needs. Wow. We also, uh, it was hard to tell in the emergency situation uh, what role each healthcare provider had. Some were technicians, some were nurses, some were pharmacists, some were doctors. And so we obtained vests that had that clearly marked so we knew who our team members were. Makes sense. Uh and we, we did a, a few other things. Those, those are the main things. So all that was taking place so the summer before the... The that. summer before. And in August of 2001, we had our final meeting and all of these uh, issues had been addressed and corrected. And so... Uh, How one, much of that did you implement during, during the actual attack? Uh, it was eerie to see that... In fact, a jetliner did hit the Pentagon at the heliport. And, you know, I mentioned that we had um, moved patients out of the Pentagon to the area by the river. And it was at that point when we were out there and we were finished evacuating the sickest patients uh, that someone told us that a jetliner had hit the Pentagon. And for many of us, we didn't know that. And uh, so, at, you know, once all the patients had been evacuated, we made our way around to the heliport where, in fact, we did see, uh, you know, obviously a, a scene of great destruction. But if you studied the debris, you could see a wing spar and some ripped pieces of aluminum. And um, let me go back to the triage area. Yeah. Uh, we had some very sick patients there, some people that needed to be intubated to protect their airway. This is a common injury when someone has inhaled, you know, hot smoke or been badly burned. Their airway will remain open for a few minutes, but then because of the the damage, it will close off and they can't breathe. Oh, wow. So we actually intubated a few patients right there. Intubated meaning, meaning a like tracheotomy? Meaning like took a, uh, a specialized instrument to open up their throat and insert a tube. 
wow. so that they could continue to breathe. And of course, we didn't have any ambulances. So people went to the parking lot, brought their own vehicles, and we sent some people on pickup trucks downtown to uh, Georgetown, George Washington Hospital. And some of these people wound up down at the, the Washington Hospital burn unit. Wow. Um, at any rate, when we got to the side of the building where the aircraft hit, which was by the heliport, we uh, assembled our team. And at that point, uh, a Master Sergeant Lorette, Paul Lorette in our unit came up to me and he was my NCOIC and uh, he he was wearing his uniform except he didn't have a shirt on. He had a t-shirt on and so I immediately asked him what happened to his shirt and he, he described a scenario where he uh, was called by some people who were trying to aid someone who was trapped. And uh, so he went over to help and a number of people went over to help. And uh, apparently a person was under a piece of concrete that had collapsed and they couldn't really see him very well. So this group of people uh, came together and apparently one very strong man got on his back, put his feet on this piece of concrete and with a mighty heave lifted it. And the rest of the folks pulled this guy free. Amazing. And during this, uh, Master Sergeant Lorette said that he felt really bad because he was on on his face down there and he was scooping wet mud away from the patient to, so he could get visibility on him. And he said when he looked back, he he was he was moving all this mud right into the face of a three star Air Force general. Uh, that turned out to be Lieutenant General. Carlson, Carlton, the Air Force Surgeon General. And, you know, after the fact, the two of them got together and and uh, realized they were working together on this. And, and the person was, in fact, saved. And uh, both uh, Master Sergeant Lorette and Lieutenant General Carlton received the Airman's Medal for, for that uh, action. Wow. Um, at any rate, we, we had all of our team by this time at uh, at the scene of the aircraft impact, um, the physician who was doing the procedure uh, apparently, you know, came out of the room long after we left and found his way out of the Pentagon and uh, eventually linked up with us. Um, oh, he still it, had to do a procedure here well, at the, he, at he the was, clinic. Yeah, yeah, he was doing a procedure that took probably 30 minutes and when we evacuated, since it was a back treatment room, uh, he didn't realize that the what was clinic had evacuated. And, and in the uh, confusion, uh, we didn't go back there to make sure nobody was back there. Yeah. And uh, at any rate, uh, both he and the patient got out fine. Um, so you finally and, linked up with him. Right. And at the um, at this scene, we began to receive reinforcements, helicopters were landing, ambulances from local military treatment facilities were arriving, and uh, it became apparent that we were starting to get some medical capability, surgical teams, and so on. But by this time, the, the Pentagon was really 
burning on fire. We sent um, a few people from our clinic to find their way into the Pentagon and get into the pharmacy and get all of the narcotics out. Because I, I think we probably left the pharmacy unsecured and we were just concerned about that aspect of it. So yeah. we uh, we sent them in there uh, and they were able to, to get the rest of the controlled substances out. And uh, we also had them get some emergency equipment, the rest of our trauma packs, things like that. And then we reassembled out at the scene. Um, as the day went on, we received more and more medical capability. But, you know, from our team that went into the building, we knew it was completely uninhabitable. It was very difficult to breathe. Yeah. There was visible, there were visible flames coming out of the roof of the Pentagon. And uh, so, you know, the likelihood of any survivors in the Pentagon at this point was remote. Yeah. Um, we did communicate with the on-scene, uh, the incident commander on-scene, but there were all of the medical folks who were trying to communicate with them. And at some point, we had a lot of medical capability on-site, and I made the decision to send our people home at about 7 o'clock that night because... It's a uh, long day. long day, but, you know, by this time, we had learned that Two aircraft had hit the World Trade Center. One had crashed in Pennsylvania, and we were, uh, you know, we didn't know what lay ahead. But but I knew that we these should. Need, these guys need some rest. Yeah, we that, we need to be ready for tomorrow. See their and, families and you know let their families know yeah. that they're uh, they're okay. Yeah. And 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 I'll tell you, we had a few people not in the clinic that day. We we had uh, one of our physicians had. Uh, departed very early in the day, probably four or five in the morning, oh, wow. with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in a uh, an overseas mission to Europe. And uh, of course, when this emergency occurred, they they turned around and came back and and had fuel uh, to make it, but they did not. Um, they had great difficulty getting clearance to land because, as oh, you recall, wow. all the Even airports the were closed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they uh, they were able to get clearance to land at Andrews Air Force Base, but that was, uh, you know, the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. And uh, then we had another doctor who was on leave with his family in Florida, and he called me. Uh, and, you know, made his way back as fast as he could. And and I would add, that was another thing about the day. We had no cell service. The circuits were overloaded and no way to get a cell phone call through, no way to let your family know you're alive, all that. Um, incidentally, now there are procedures for situations like this where we can override if you're emergency personnel you can override and get in there's a comms plan now. right okay. right uh and um and didn't you have another doctor at walter reed too at the time uh, actually that was the uh commander of the de lorenzo clinic jim guiling he was seeing patients at walter reed and when he heard about this he 
he got in his car and tried to drive back to the Pentagon. All the bridges across the Potomac were closed. So he just parked his car on a sidewalk and tried to walk across the bridge and they wouldn't let him come across. But eventually uh -huh. he talked his way through and he, he got back here later in the day. So at the time, other than the Surgeon General, you were the senior doctor on, on the scene. Right, right. And, you know, uh, we were very lucky that we had worked this scenario because we had just reviewed all the procedures in depth. We had fixed the major problems that we saw. And uh, we had built those relationships with the people working during the exercise. And so we were comfortable just getting right into it. So and, it, uh, it went as well as it could have went. Right. And, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but the other bit of good luck that we had was the jetliner struck the one wedge that had been completed. Mm -hmm. It was reinforced. There was a sprinkler system. There were blast proof windows. And had those things not existed, I, I'm afraid the toll would have been much higher. As you recall, the toll was somewhere 170, 180, including the 55 people on the aircraft, 55 or so, which included, I think, five terrorists on the aircraft. And uh, so had had this been a fully occupied wedge, there would have been thousands of people in that wedge instead of perhaps a few hundred. Got you. So it, it wasn't over after 9-11, though, for you all, what was it? No, no. It, that was uh, just the beginning, really. Uh, of course, everybody realized that uh, life had changed. Yeah. You know, this is an attack on the American homeland and uh, a premeditated terrorist attack with the intent to kill innocent people. And so uh, everything changed. And for starters, uh, Secretary Rumsfeld announced that the following day, uh, September 12th, was a duty day. And keep in mind, the Pentagon is on fire. There are bright yellow flames coming out of the roof of the Pentagon, and there's smoke billowing up to the sky. But this, that's your place of duty, and this is a duty day. So we reported um, cordons had been put up around the Pentagon, so uh, there was no place to park. Uh, I parked on a median somewhere and walked to the Pentagon and uh, came in prepared to evacuate. And uh, again, choking smoke throughout the Pentagon. Uh, and so we got to our clinic and started packaging up any remaining pharmaceuticals and medical records. We had a pallet that we were put putting all the uh, boxes of medical records on, and we were getting together a plan to get this out to uh, the periphery of the Pentagon so that we could save the medical records from burning. Yeah. And um, so we worked on that all morning. And... Uh, by mid-afternoon, we got word that the fire teams had gained control of the fire, and they did this by uh, cutting into the roof. You know, apparently all their efforts uh, just weren't doing the job, but they they 
came in from the roof and broke into the roof and that allowed them to get enough water and fire retardant onto the fire that that we gained control. The fire wasn't out, but it looked like we wouldn't have to totally evacuate. So we stopped our efforts to do the evacuation and turned our efforts to how are we going to provide care? So you're doing all this while the Pentagon's literally, literally on fire. Yes. Incredible. And also, um, there's there were those who immediately surmised that we should tear down this old building and rebuild a modern structure with modern infrastructure and and uh, you know a better structure. Um, Secretary Rumsfeld quickly shut uh, that down. He did, and just mentioning that uh, you know this a uh, uh, building of great historical importance and a lot of proud history, and we would rebuild it. And uh, in fact, that same process that had been taking place, you know, this wedge renovation, we would uh, continue that process and and bring it up to uh, a modern structure. And that was important um, for a number of reasons. I am told that a lot of the electrical switching was in the basement. And with all the uh, water from the fire efforts, uh, it was getting within inches of the main switches in the Pentagon. And so I understand all that's been fixed and those are much higher now and many other uh, protective uh, technologies have been put into the building. Very, very good. Very good. were you part of any teams that had to scan for anthrax later on? Or? Yes, yes. Uh, first of all, after 9-11, we went into seven-day-a-week operations from uh, our normal arrows had been seven to four. We changed it to seven to seven, and then uh, we were considerably longer that that many nights I spent some nights in the Pentagon because it really wasn't worthwhile to go home, go home and come back. And, uh, you know, it was smoky and, uh, there was soot everywhere. Uh, but we did continue operations. We had meetings every day with, uh, the DiLorenzo clinic, uh, down in their conference room talking about all the medical, uh, aspects of this. Some of them were concerned about uh, chemical and biological warfare, mm. uh, concern about toxic exposures, concern about PTSD. Yeah. And I will tell you that we had a lot of people who were struggling with PTSD that uh, the, particularly the ones that saw the aircraft they yeah. may have been returning to the Pentagon or driving by the Pentagon or walking to their car. And if they saw that airplane impact, that was a video that they could not get out of their mind. They just saw it over and over and over. And uh, there were some people really hurting from that. And and there were a number of other people who were survivors. They may have been the only survivor or of their, one of, their one of only or... a few that survived in their office. Oh. I, I think uh, Colonel Birdwell had 
gone out to get a cup of coffee or something and everybody else perished in his center, as I recall. And the uh, so this is a tough thing for people to deal with. And military medicine put a lot of folks uh, here in the Pentagon to to help everybody with that. In the weeks that followed, as you recall, there was uh, an anthrax scare. Yeah, Politicians and others were receiving envelopes with white powdery substances. And I do remember that. Of course, anthrax is a very scary thing. It's very easy to acquire it and very easy to infect someone. You can inhale it and uh, it's a deadly disease. Yeah. The the pulmonary form of anthrax is very deadly. There is a cutaneous form. Um, so we uh, were stockpiling ciprofloxacin, the effective drug for that. Uh, we were uh, trying to get anthrax vaccine and preparing for a worst case scenario Here. With, with anthrax. Uh, we were doing nasal swabs, working with CDC, and trying to make sure that we didn't, uh, you know, have an anthrax problem. Is there anything for you, like the smell of gasoline that you mentioned or, or smoke or, or the smell of smoke or anything that else that would, that triggers you personally back to that day? Is there any kind of symptoms for you, for you? Oh, sure. You know, um, having done this for so long, I, I retired in 2004, came here and 1995, retired in 2004, was moving off to the civilian sector, but somebody stepped in and created a job and asked if I could stay and keep doing this, which I have done. Um, there's no greater patient population in the world, and I still look forward to every day. Um, but yes, walking through the halls of the Pentagon, you know, sometimes I'll see something and think, yeah, I remember this on 9-11. Yeah. And and I would say this, uh, the folks that reconstructed the Pentagon did a superb job. In particular, you recall that uh, we moved rapidly to get a contract to fix the Pentagon where this tragedy had occurred. Yeah. And uh, those contractors worked day and night and they finished ahead of schedule and did a super job. Great patriots. Um, and, and other than that, they have the Pentagon now is like a museum with, uh, paintings, pictures on oh, the wall. Great. It's great here. Great uh, the, place know, to, to visit. Yeah. Um, so this was your final duty station. Right. Um, you got out in 2004. Yeah. I actually never made it out the door. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so this operation still exists. We're still doing that core of things that I described. Uh, we have many more patients these days. We still work closely with the DiLorenzo Clinic. Yeah. And uh, we actually have a couple more clinics at Andrews that report up to us here. And uh, so we try to stay ahead of these things. Uh, we try to train uh, regularly. We try to anticipate the worst case scenarios that could occur. We try to keep abreast of the news. If we see something that's a little unusual in the news and we start checking the news a little more often Very because well. uh, we saw what happened on 9-11 and, and we live in a dangerous world. Yeah. And it's our job to 
be part of the solution if something really bad happens. Got so. you. So you walked out as the as the uh, commander. A couple months later, became the director. Yeah. Um, part of that mission for you now is to be the chief flight surgeon for Secretary of Defense, Chief of Staff. Is that yeah. correct? Well, I'm, I'm. We're just a small flight clinic. We report to the 11th Medical Group, and uh, because of our location, we do have a lot of the senior folks that are our patients. But uh, you know. It's, Probably 6% of our patients are senior people and 94% are, you know, sergeants, majors, petty officers, whatnot. And uh, as, as I said, we, we try to deliver the best care that you can get anywhere. And I'll say again, we have the best patient population you'll find anywhere. A lot of dedicated people who are working their hearts out for a purpose bigger than themselves. Very good. Very good. Dr. Baxter, what is one skill that you learned during your military service that you still use today? I suppose, well, that's a long answer. Of course, uh, very grateful for the medical training I received at the Uniformed Services University. Very grateful pretty for direct skill set all of the <laughs> emergency medical training. As I mentioned, I was in Air, uh, advanced trauma life support instructor for about 20 years, advanced cardiac life support instructor for about 20 years, and very grateful to have been given that skill set. And uh, that's what you want to be. As, as they say, when something bad happens, you know, run towards a gunfire. Yeah. And that's what we're here for is uh, we know our roles and we know that it's our job if something catastrophic happens is to get in there and do everything we can do to take care of folks. And, and we're proud to do that. Very well. Um, and this is this is a question that we asked every guest. This is a question that we ask every guest here on Born the Battle. Um, is there a nonprofit or a veteran in the veteran space that you think is a good example for for veterans to 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 learn from? You know, I couldn't give one example, but I've known many folks over the years who are selflessly working with wounded warriors and other veterans to um, recognize and help those who, as you say, have borne the battle. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I really couldn't give one one organization. There are many, and we're grateful to all of them. Doctor, is there anything else that I haven't asked that you think it's important for our listeners to to learn? Well, I think you've covered it pretty well, and I, and I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to help keep keep these memories alive. Because as they say, if you forget the past, you're condemned to repeat it. If they need a home, they can get a home loan. If they need education, they can get education. If they were hurt in service, we pay compensation. If you weren't hurt in service, but you fell on hard times, we give you pension. There's just an array of benefits out there for veterans. And we really wanna just make sure that all the veterans know what's out there. Choose VA today. For more information, visit va.gov or call 1-855-948-2311. I want to thank the good doctor for sharing his story with us. I think prior to that, he had only shared his story with a couple of medical journals. 
And it was a passage in the book that he mentioned. For us in the post 9-11 generation, much like the World War II vets at Pearl Harbor, we will never forget 9-11. But there are now young soldiers, sailors, airmen, coasties, and marines that don't have that personal recollection of that day. It's the 18th anniversary. There are recruits that weren't even born on 9-11. If you're a content creator and you run across a story like Dr. Baxter's, it's so very important to record it and broadcast it for future generations. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Navy veteran Ronald Vaught. He was born on January 1964 in Nampa, Idaho, where he spent the majority of his childhood alongside his eight siblings. After graduating high school, Vok earned an appointment to the United States Naval Academy and graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Political Science. He later got trained in nuclear power school and went on to serve on the USS Glenard P. Lipscomb as well as the USS Oklahoma City. He soon attained the rank of Lieutenant Commander and left active duty for the Naval Reserve in 1993. Since 1997, Vaughn had also been a supervisor to an assistant group studying submarine technology at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. Vaughn was on his second day of his two-week annual reserve duty when the plane hit the Pentagon. Vok was awarded the Purple Heart, which was accepted by his Gold Star wife, Jennifer Vok. Vok's favorite activities were playing with his son, golfing with his family and friends, as well as polishing his woodwork skills. Vok is survived by his two children, son Liam and daughter Megan. Megan was born two months after the attack. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just email us at podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up and let us know why you would like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our blog, Vantage Point, at blogs.va.gov. And follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, etc. DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here on Monday. We will finally get that bonus episode. Take care.